Well, hello, and God bless you, and welcome to another Bible Study Live here at Deliverance Temple and online with you. So it's good to see you. Uh, remember to like, comment, and share, and uh, tell someone about the Word of God being studied on tonight. So let's bow our heads. Dear Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you. We love you and we appreciate and honor you, God, for all that you are and all that you mean to us, God. We ask that you illuminate our study, God. We ask that you would bless the things going on in this world, the things that are going on in our lives, the things that are going on in our city, uh, the things that are important to us. We ask that you look on them. But, God, we do give you praise for what you've already done and how you've carried us thus far. And, God, as we near the close of another year, God, give us strength to finish strong and move into a new year doing the things that you would have for us. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are uh, working through, once again, our uh, Sunday sermon. And so we're going to look at what that was and what, uh, what we covered. We covered the idea of being forgiven and what it means to be uh, forgiven. And one of the things that we were looking at was the idea that uh, when we normally talk about forgiveness, sometimes in the church we're talking about it from the standpoint of our need to forgive, which is very biblical. Uh, it's very uh, good to talk about that. But sometimes in order to get to that place and that point, we have to remember that we are forgiven. And so when we talk about forgiven, we're talking about what God did for us. And so we wanted to look at a story that shows that to us. But I also wanted to think of it in terms of something that I shared uh, a couple of weeks ago. I talked about the gospel and the idea that the gospel is done, not do. And uh, many times uh, we talk about do doing for God and forgetting what was already done for us through Christ. Now, what we do for God should be a response to what was already done. So we made the statement, two statements. One, that we're not working for salvation, we're working from salvation. And we made the statement, we're not working for victory, we're working from victory. Well, the victory came in the fact that God chose to, through his son, forgive us. And uh, that which we carry, the burden that we carry, has not been imputed to us. We have been treated as if we were righteous based on the righteousness of God seen in the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. And so that mindset is the mindset of the gospel, and we cannot forget that. And of course, we want to do the right thing. Uh, of course, we want to grow up and have the right fruit and all those things, but we can't forget the starting point. The starting point is God did everything for us. And so that is what we see with the cross. But even while Jesus lived and tabernacled in this earth, uh, earthland, earthen vessel and in uh, the earth, the earthly Jesus, we see the uh, glimpses of what he was going to do for us. He showed it to us and how that he interacted with people. And this is one of those stories. So once again, forgiven. Let's start off here in Luke chapter seven and the 36th verse. Uh, it says this, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. And so Jesus had no trouble sitting down to eat with him. Uh, we make this distinction uh, from what we've seen uh, 
about a month ago when uh, Brother Neil preached, he talked to us about Zacchaeus. And the distinction here is that Zacchaeus, in Zacchaeus' case, Jesus said, I'm coming to your house. In other words, Jesus invited himself to Zacchaeus' house. He knew Zacchaeus was ready. In this case, it was the opposite. He was invited to this Pharisee's house. And we'll, we'll see the Pharisee's name here in just a second. So understand that and remember that. We'll, we'll come back to that, that this is a little bit different. Jesus did not push himself into this home. This person invited Jesus in. All right, so verse 37 says this, when a certain immoral woman from that city a certain woman, heard he was eating there. She brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. And so when this particular woman, and it's interesting how uh, it's spoken of, it's, she's called an immoral woman. So she had a reputation that wasn't good. It was a certain immoral woman. So she was not just any general one. It was a certain one, someone who people would have known. She had a reputation and her reputation was not great. But for whatever reason, she had had an encounter with Jesus somewhere, somehow, whether it's just being in the crowd, whether uh, um, listening to the teachings, seeing him, we don't really know, or maybe she just heard about him. All we know is that when she found out a location of where he was, she immediately wanted to come near him and she brought some expensive perfume with her. So what would have prompted her to do that? Why would she have had that with her? Uh, there's not a whole lot of context given to us. You, you have to do some extra study to figure that out. But being the type of woman that she was, she understood hospitality. Now, maybe she used her hospitality for her immorality, but that didn't mean she didn't understand how people should be treated, how men specifically needed to be treated. We, we don't know. We can only uh, use conjecture in our imagination, but there was something triggering in a positive way that says he's close, he's near, and I need to be where he is. But the difference was, it's not that I need to be where he is to get something from him. I need to be where he is to give something to him, which is, uh, we would say, quite interesting in the sense that most people that were interacting with Jesus were on the take, on the receiving end, which is nothing wrong because he came to give, but we see few cases where people wanted to give back. We see the one case in the, the lepers where one wanted to come back and say thank you. We don't know where she would have encountered Jesus before or if this is the first time, but whatever it is, she wanted to bring something to him. She brought an alabaster box. The woman with the issue of blood, she needed to get something from Jesus. She just wanted to go and touch the hem of his garment. She didn't want a lot, but she felt like if I go and I touch the him I'll be may hold, but she needed something from him. This woman, the immoral woman, she wanted to bring something to Jesus. All right, let's go further. And here's a point that I wanted to make is that immorality can't stop proximity. 
make it large so you can see it. Immorality can't stop proximity. That's one of the first things I see because we see that she was an immoral woman and she wanted to get close to Jesus, but her immorality couldn't stop her from getting close. Proximity just means uh, close or distance from. And so she wanted to be in close proximity with Jesus, even though she was an immoral woman. And one of the first things that we need to think about when we think about being forgiven is our own uh, desire. And, you know, the previous week we talked about uh, the designer's desire, how our desires have to line up to the designer's desires. But until that time comes, sometimes our desires can be rooted in immorality, can be rooted in uh, our depravity, our sin nature, our sin consciousness, whether it's when we think of immorality, many times we're thinking of sexual deviance, we're th- thinking of our lower nature, our passions. So it could be that, it could be anger, it could be anything. But the whole point is that doesn't stop us from getting close to Jesus. It's actually the opposite in um, when it comes to the childlike faith. Jesus said, suffer the children to come unto me. But let's think of it as it relates to immorality in another word. So you say, Pastor Andre, what do you mean the children and immorality? Where there's another word that's similar to immorality, and it's the word immaturity. When you are immature or underdeveloped in the things of God, you're like a child. But Jesus said, suffer the children to come unto me or allow them to come unto me. Even if you are immature or immoral or have things about you that are underdeveloped, that you're not fully grown. The scripture talks about being a full grown man in Christ. So until you get to that place, then you are childlike. You can be childish. Uh, Paul said, when I became a man, I put away childish things. Well, that co- there's a process and a progress to get to that place. So you can be immature and immoral. You could be operating as a child. You could be operating under your lower nature. And Jesus says, let them come unto me because I can fix them and grow them up. My forgiveness, my posture toward them can actually develop them. But if they think because they're immoral or immature or sinful or less than or not believing or angry or anxious or depressed, if I use that to make them think because of that they can't draw near to me, then they will never get what they need. So allow them to come in the state that they are, in their immoral state, in their confused state, in their messed up state. I still say there's a pathway near me, come toward me. But the beauty is that the immoral woman wanted to bring something to the master. And us in our childishness, the scripture also talks about childlike faith. So you may be immature in some of the ways of your morality. You may be immature in certain sin behaviors. But if you bring childlike faith to say, hey, I still want to be next to him. I still want to bring my faith to him. And I'm trusting that he will do something in my life, even though I am weak and lowly and beggarly, even though I may not be the best. It was one uh, scripture of two people praying. One was a Pharisee, the other was a publican. The publican says, I'm not worthy to even be near you, but I humble myself and say, I'm just grateful that you would even listen to someone like me. So even though he was immoral and immature, 
he's, he's using that to have childlike faith to say, yes, but I still come. And that's what we see with this woman here. She, she is not the goody two-shoes. She's not perfect. She's not the best. Her past is not the best. But in this moment in time, she's willing to come to Jesus, not just for what she needs, but also to bring. And that shows uh, a, a beauty there. So having uh, said that, let's look further. Let's go ahead and repeat this one more time. Immorality can't stop proximity. Let's look at verse 38. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. So the moment she comes in, she comes in with a weeping brokenness. A lot of times what people who can be sedity and religious and judgmental and talk about what people need to change and all that they need to do and you need to do better, you need to stop this. A lot of times they don't understand how broken the immorality has left people. Sometimes when people come to Jesus, you don't have to tell them how wrong they are. They have carried that for years. They know it and they come into the presence of God willing to give but also weep because they understand I'm not worthy. There's, there is, uh, there's some guilt and shame that has hindered me. Uh, guilt can have a good place, but shame just tears people up. And so this woman comes weeping and not coming to be in his face. So let's go back uh, to the scripture. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, not even saying, I want to be in your face, but just let me get close to your feet. You know, I, I understand who I am and I understand who you are. And in the proximity of that, you're up here. I'm down here. So just let me draw near to your feet. Don't have to be in your, in your face. Don't have to be on your lap. You don't have to be hugging me. Just let me get close. Uh, same thing with the woman with the issue of blood. She went down to the hem of his garment. I, I, I'm, I got a lot of issues. And so I, I don't have, you don't have to put your hands on my head. You don't have to embrace me. But if I can just get close to you down where you are and grab the hem, that's good enough for me. So this level of humility that both of these women have are very interesting for us to learn from. So her tears fell on his feet. Now, this doesn't seem like she purposely put her tears on his feet, but this is just something that happened. Her tears fell on his feet and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. So obviously the kissing of the feet and the perfume was something that was purposeful, but the tears landing on his feet was something involuntarily. It just happened. And the only thing she had to wipe with was her hair. So she uses her hair to wipe his feet. And then she kisses his feet. And in our context, in our day and age, most people are look at that as sexual and sensual, but it was is not so much sexual and sensual. It's it's more humble and gracious. You ever seen in foreign countries where a man will grab a, a woman's hand and just, oh, oh, thank you, thank you, oh, I pray. It was that type of kissing. It was a gratitude. It was not sensual and sexual, even though she was an immoral woman. And this is what you have to understand about the power of Jesus. Even if you are immoral and have sexual issues, when you're in the presence of Jesus, it, you're just humble. You're broken. You're weeping. Your 
your sexuality does not take the uh, the ascendancy. It doesn't take the front seat. Your spirituality takes the front seat because you're in the presence of Jesus. And what you understand is because of your sexuality and your past issues, you shouldn't even be this close. But you feel drawn into him and you feel that he elevates your spirituality. You feel more spiritual than you even should. Have you ever been in a situation where you're in the presence of Jesus and revelation, I say this often, revelation knowledge flows freely. In other words, you become aware of things that you weren't aware of before. You had these aha moments in the presence of him. You're like, oh, I, you know, I look at the scripture and it makes no sense to me. But in the presence of Jesus, wow, I, I get it. I understand. That humbles you. Like you, you've been studying something forever. Makes no sense to you. You come to church and the pastor preaches on it or the worship song is singing about it. And it's just like in that moment, it just clicks. Oh, I get it. And then that humbles you. He's like, oh, God, you're so good to me. There's no way I could have understood this on, on my own. Oh, oh, God, I thank you. Oh, Master, I appreciate you. So this was worship. This was not sexual. It was worship. It may have been sensual, but it was spiritual, and it was worship, and it was very powerful. And once again, this is not a bishop. This is not a pope. This is not a missionary. This is not Mother Teresa. This is not the church mother, the first lady. This is an immoral woman. But what we see in that moment is we see great forgiveness and love and compassion from Jesus to her without Jesus ever doing anything yet. He's just sitting there reclining. All right, let's go to verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, or within himself, he didn't say it out loud, it was just a thought. If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. So this Pharisee doesn't see this as a worship, doesn't see the beauty of this, doesn't see the proximity and the immorality, he only sees the immorality. He only sees if this person is a man of God, if he's a prophet, if he was so awesome. So this shows us the real motive of the invitation. The invitation was not so much to learn of Jesus, to provide Jesus with a meal or to be in Jesus' company. It was to scrutinize. It was to figure out. It was to pinpoint, to check, to, uh, hmm, I wonder who he is. And so the immediate thing, and so what, what we don't know is we don't know is how often throughout the meal he had been looking to figure out what's he going to do? Is he going to eat wrong? Is he going to do something wrong? And maybe up until this point, he couldn't find anything out. Here's this woman shows up. This is, this is the Pharisee's house. You allowed the woman to come in and you allowed the woman to get next to Jesus. You didn't stop it at all. So you were just trying to figure out what Jesus was, would do. You were probably happy the woman showed up because this is your chance to figure out, oh, I wonder what he's going to do. Mm -hmm. 
And so the whole motive was wrong from this Pharisee. So let's look at it again. So when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, within himself, he's thinking this, if, if, if. You remember when we look at the Jesus in the wilderness, when he first uh, come out anointed with the power of the spirit, spirit leads him into the wilderness. He fasts and the devil himself shows up to tempt Jesus. And the first temptation that the devil has is if you are the son of God do this if so here going back to this very first thing this man says if this man were a prophet if so what we see is the spirit and the motive and the motor behind this judgmental pharisee was actually demonic because we see that's the very thing the devil did if 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 you're so close to god if you're such a prophet if you're so awesome, if you're so forgiven. So that questioning and that inquisitive tone that is more prosecutorial, that judgmental, that, hmm, I wonder, that mindset was really very demonic. All right, so he wouldn't know what kind of man, a woman is touching him. She's a sinner. So that leads us to our next point. Sinners can touch Jesus. So Jesus knew she was a sinner because Jesus was a prophet. But not only is it true that immorality can't stop proximity, Jesus allows sinners to touch him because Jesus understood all along his motive and his reason for being. The Bible says through John the Baptist, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. So I came to deal with sin. I came to eradicate sin. I came to pull sin away. So the fact that a sinner is next to me is not a problem for me. It doesn't bother me. It doesn't make me itch. It doesn't irritate me. Actually, I need the sinners to come unto me. I need those children, those immature and immoral moral people. I actually need them to come unto me and I will allow them to touch me because I am the answer. And what the Pharisee didn't know is that at some point I'm taking all sin to the cross. So put all your sin on me because it's coming on me anyhow. So touch me with your sin. Touch me with your trouble. Touch me with your mess ups. Touch me with all your junk you got, all the things that, that you have, all the traumas, the triggers, the temptations. Touch me with all of that because I am righteous. And what the Pharisee doesn't understand is I'm getting ready to exchange your sin for my righteousness. And so as you are touching me with your sinful self, it's okay because the great exchange is I am going to accept your sin and I'm going to give you the free gift of righteousness, which is the gospel message. Verse 40. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. And here we see uh, Jesus' words in red. But what I loved about this is Jesus answered his thoughts. Because remember, he never said it out loud. He just thought it. And now, up until this point, it hasn't told us the name of the Pharisee. But now we get, get his name. And Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher. Simon replied, now, 
What we don't know is how there were more than one person in the room. This was obvious by what we were reading. We don't know how many were at the table, but there was several at the table. But Jesus addressed Simon specifically. Now, in my imagination, I see Simon at the head of the table and Jesus on the side. And I see Jesus turning to him is like, Simon, I got something to tell you. Not knowing, Simon not knowing that he's getting to answer the thought that he hasn't, hasn't even thought out loud. He hasn't spoken it. But Jesus knowing all things is going to address him specifically. But what I, but what I like how this picture is painted in my imagination is that there's, you know how you're sitting around the table. There's several conversations going on or just, just talk and chatter. But Jesus commanded the stage and directed the attention to Simon. Simon, I got something to tell you. So everybody would have listened up. Just the nosy nature of all people would have listened up to figure out what he's going to say to Simon. Now, other people would have seen this woman interacting with Jesus. So many people could have been thinking the same thing. But here's what's very important. This was Simon's house. So Jesus said, I'm going to deal with Simon because this is in his house. See, there are some things that happen around us that may not be correct, but Jesus wants to deal with, with it, what is in your house. See, judgmental people want to worry about what's going on in everybody else's house, but Jesus wants to deal with what's in your house. So he addressed Simon specifically being the, the fact that this was his house, his home. All right, he said, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher. Uh, Simon replied, so he didn't know what he's going to say. He, he may have thought it was something positive. Then Jesus told him this story. What I like about the beauty of Jesus is Jesus knew his thoughts, and he could have really been harsh with him, but he just told a story. He said, okay, I, I, I see what you're doing. You're trying to scrutinize me and trap me up and figure out, am I this and that, or if I am? I, I see the demonic. Uh, nature in your questioning, but instead of me just hammering you, let me, let me tell you a story because people learn from stories. So in the compassion of Jesus, he's saying, Simon, you, you're approaching me wrong, but maybe you can learn a lesson. So then Jesus told him this story, a man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. So this brings up the third point that sin is like a debt. So now we're switching just to, from what the woman was doing to Jesus to a story that Jesus is telling Simon. But in this story, he begins to tell a story about debt, about owing. And so I go ahead and I make the connection for us. Sin is like a debt. And so that's why Jesus is working this way. Let me hear. Let's go right here to Luke seven forty two, But neither of them could repay him. So I didn't make this connection in uh, on Sunday, but I'll make it for for us. So sin is like a debt. And here the first part of the next verse says neither of them can repay. But let me add this for you. Sin is like a debt that can't be repaid by the one who sinned. So the one who created the debt cannot get themselves out of the debt. 
And so Jesus is telling the story, but let me make the connection for you. Sin is a debt that you can't repay. Sin is a debt that the sinner can't repay because it's a debt that gets out of hand. It's an old saying that if you give the devil an inch, he'll take a mile. It's just like real debt and compound interest. It can get out of hand very quickly. Sin is very similar. So, but neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Now, here's the question that Jesus wanted to pose to Simon. Who do you suppose love him more after that? So here's the question, Simon. Here's the story. We got two people that both owed a lot. One owed one amount, another owed another amount. The one who owed the biggest amount got forgiven, and the one who owed the smallest amount got forgiven. The one who owed the smallest amount got forgiven. The one who owed the biggest amount got forgiven. So, uh, and the debts were canceled. So the question is, Simon, who would love him more after that? In other words, who would be more appreciative? They both got the same thing, but who would be happier? If you owed me $5 and I said, I don't, don't worry about that. You would think, oh, man, Andre's a pretty good dude. But if you owe me 5000 and I say, don't worry about that, you might think, man, Andre is amazing. I can't believe. Because there's something about the amounts that the person who owes, it means a lot to that particular individual. All right, so let's look here. Verse 43. Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. So Simon said, I, I guess the guy who had the larger debt. And in other words, just mathematically, it seems like five, the person who was forgiven 500 would be happier, would love him more. In other words, I don't know where you're going with this, Jesus. That's how Simon was answering Jesus. And so Jesus says to Simon, that's right. In other words, you're, you're right. So the question is, like, what are you talking about, Jesus? And I, I, I can see how Simon was just kind of confused because he interrupted everything to point his direction to Simon and tell this story. All right, so I wanted to add this other point that we, we used, and here it is. Student loan forgiveness is not new. This seems like a random statement to make, but as I, were, as I was thinking about sin is a debt. I thought about the fact that when Jesus told Simon, I got something to tell you, Simon makes a statement and, and I, I just caught my attention. He said, go ahead and speak, teacher. So uh, Jesus is a rabbi and, and that was just a common word. They called him master or teacher, but he was the master teacher. And him being the master teacher makes all of us students compared to him. And it just made me think of this new age where people have been fussing and fighting about student loan forgiveness. Those who have student loans to go to college and, and how should they be forgiven and should they not be forgiven. And it just made me think of that, that student loan forgiveness is not new because Jesus is the master teacher, which makes us the master students. And being the students that we are, we have amassed a lot of debt, a lot of sin debt that we cannot pay. 
But the forgiveness of that debt is not new. The wiping clean of that slate is not new. It was built into the DNA of who Jesus was, his blood. He is a forgiver by his nature. That's what he came to do, to forgive sins, to erase sins, to eradicate sin. It's actually built into the scriptures even before Jesus showed up. The idea of atonement and sacrifice that the blood of bulls and goats was made to actually atone for sins. That when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. It is built into the system of God that the students, the lesser people, they will not get this right. And they will amass sin debt that they cannot pay. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to erase and set the captives free. And so I want you to remember, no matter where you are in your journey and no matter when you fall short or if you fall short, the master teacher looks at you as a student and he will and he can forgive your debt, forgive your loan. And you can't repay it, but God can pay it. Now, if that happens, you should be like this woman and be happy and grateful and have an attitude of gratitude that I am forgiven. All right, let's go back into the story. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. So he took Simon's attention off of the woman and began to talk directly to him and tell him this story. And then he brought his attention back to the woman, basically saying, I know what she was thinking anyway. Come on. So come on. Let's let's uh, the elephant in the room. Let's go ahead and talk about it right now. I'm in here right now. All right. Let's let's go and let's look at the scripture just for a second. We're going to hold it there. You guys read it and then I'm going to come back and read it. Okay, let's read it together. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. In other words, you have brought me in and invited me, but you weren't very courteous to me. You asked me in. There's a lot of people who have asked Jesus into their life. But they don't they haven't really accepted him. They haven't really treated him the way he should. They don't worship him. And so why? Why? Why are they so indifferent to the presence of God? Why are they so uh, nonchalant? This woman was totally different. The moment she got near to him, there was just this whole elaborate thing where she was going all out in the way she worshiped him, even bringing the alabaster box and other uh, other passages talk even about how important that alabaster box was and and how costly and and how much it was for her to offer it. And here, here you are, Simon, you are you are a man of means. And this woman, this immoral woman, it seems to suggest from what we know that she was a prostitute. So uh, in her past life, so she made money by doing things that she just had to do. 
You are a Pharisee. You're making money. You, you haven't had to stoop to these low levels to make money, but you won't even treat me like this woman has treated me. So look at what Jesus is doing, how he is comparing and contrasting. And all right, we're going to go back to the scripture here. Verse 45, you didn't greet me with a kiss. But from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. Now, what I don't know is this. I don't believe, I'm not for sure that he means that the moment he showed up to eat that she had was all over him. I, I believe that when he had pushed back from the table that they had went into the or a space to recline. After they'd eaten, they went to a space to recline and just relax and, you know, maybe enjoy conversation, whatever they did in that culture. And from the time that he got to wherever he was and she entered in, she she had not stopped interacting with him, kissing his feet, worshiping him, wiping the dust off his feet. I mean, taking care of him. But you you didn't do any of that. You you didn't do any of those things. She has operated totally different from the way you have operated. Verse 46, you neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I like that statement. You, you didn't even treat me with common courtesy, the, the courtesy to anoint my head. So these are customs that they had that they would have understood, especially a Pharisee who understood the law. There are certain things that should have uh, gone, especially with him being a master teacher, the rabbi. There are certain things that should have happened. And the fact that he is proclaiming to be the son of God. You may not have totally believed it. Maybe you wanted to check that out. But just in the chance that he was who he said he was, something should have happened. In our day and age, if the president comes to town, they're going to pull out all the stops because he's the president. Whether you voted for him or not, people are going to treat him with some level of respect because of who he is. And Jesus is like, you, you gave me nothing. You invited me here, but offered me nothing. But this woman has offered me everything. So he's painting the picture. You are checking me out to say, if I am who I say I am, or if I was a prophet, I would know who she was. But I'm pointing to you. If you were who you say you were, you would have handled me a whole lot different than you have. Verse 47, I tell you her sins and they are many. So he's letting them know, you think I don't know who she is and you think I don't know what she's done because if I was a prophet, I should know who she is. So you think, number one, either I'm oblivious and if I'm oblivious, then I'm not at prof prophetic. And if I'm not prophetic, I can't be the son of God. But yeah, I know who she is. And I know she has many sins. I know more about her sins than you do. You only know through hearsay, but I intimately know her because I created her. And so I know every mistake that she's ever made. So yeah, her sins are many, but that, that, that doesn't bother me because I'm bigger than her immorality. I'm bigger than her sin. I'm bigger than her issues and her hangups. And so I tell you her sins and they are many have been forgiven. So, the reason why it's not a big issue to me, because I'm a forgiver. 
I'm a debt canceller. So, yes, she can't repay the debt of her sin, but it's not a big issue because I planned on canceling. They are forgiven, all of them, all the many sins that she had, they are forgiven. So she has shown me much love. In other words, what she's doing is a response to the forgiveness. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. King James says, for those who have been forgiven much, love much. Those who have been forgiven little, love little. And so the reason why you didn't embrace me and handle me this way, uh, Simon, is because you're goody two-shoes. You, you haven't made a whole lot of mistakes. And Pharisees were very disciplined. Maybe, maybe you haven't sinned like she has sinned. You haven't done like she's done. And hey, that's on you. That's okay. But you can't love like she loves. You, you, you didn't even have common courtesy. It didn't even cross your mind. You, you can't even extend yourself and love deeply because you ain't never been through nothing. So it's, it's okay, Simon. I, I ain't going to dog you out. But, but please don't bother what she's doing for me because she's been at the bottom and she's just so grateful for what God has done. And when you are part of Deliverance Temple, you're just not, you're not the goody two-shoes. You, 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 you haven't done everything right. You've got some stuff in your life, in your past, in your history. But your worship of God is the fact that I'm forgiven. And you may not know how awesome that is, but I understand how awesome that is. And I know God understands how awesome that is because God knows everything about me. And he still washes me and cleans me and accepts me. So you're not going to stop this praise. You're not going to stop this hallelujah. You're not going to stop me from coming to church and giving money and listening to sermons and praising the Lord. You can't, you can't stop that because you don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've come through. And so because of that, I am grateful, most grateful for God's work in my life. And then that leads me to this point, which speaks to our communicating Christ's love compassionately. So here's point number five, broken people make the best healers. People who actually been through things and come through things and have understood the debt that they owe that they couldn't pay, that the fact that it was taken care of, those people, they make good healers. She was emotional. She touched his feet. She cried. She wiped his feet with her hair. She pulled out the perfume. She she was actually a healing agent toward Jesus because of her worship, because of her brokenness, because she knew I shouldn't even be close to this man, but he's forgiven me. His love for me has been just so kind. And in, in the story that Jesus said that, that the person kindly forgave the debts. So not forgive it with a harsh tone. Mm, you need to do better. I'm, I'm going to take care of it this time, but I ain't going to keep putting up with your mess. That, I mean, you can do that, but that's not how Jesus forgave. He forgave with such kindness, such sweetness. With the woman caught in adultery, he just said to her, go and sin no more. Oh, by the way, where are your accusers? Uh, those without sin cast the first stone. He was just so compassionate and loving. We communicate Christ's love compassionately. And so when you've been broken, you know how to communicate Christ's love in a compassionate way. Not in a way like you better come get it. 
or, or else go to hell. It's that's a little rough. It's another way to communicate. And those who've been broken, they communicate in just a much different way. The broken people, they make the best healers. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Now, now, wait a second. He said her sins and they are many. He said they are forgiven, but he spoke it as if they are past tense. In other words, the reason why she's drawn near because she's already been forgiven. And then he speaks to her and says, your sins are forgiven, which means that, oh, by the way, woman, this is an ongoing thing. It's not that I just forgave what you already done, but your connection with me is going to forgive even in the future. I got you. You stay close to me. You stay worshiping me. You allow my love to wash over you and you anoint me and, and, and draw close to me. This is going to be a continual process. You will always be forgiven as long as you're always close to me. So your closest to me will always keep you forgiven. So if you do end up getting immature again and immoral again, I got you. All you got to do is stay close to me because your sins are forgiven because of me. Not because of you, but because of me. The men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? So instead of being happy, they were more confused. Who is he? Now, you are Pharisees who know the law. So you should understand the only one who can forgive sins is God. So he has to be who he said he was. Because for him to be this flippant about forgiving sins, he got to be. And it all dawned on Simon. Oh, by the way, I never said what I said out loud. He read my mind. He got to be a prophet because he read my mind. And then he told me everything he told me, explained the story to me. And now he's saying he's got the power to forgive sins. It should have drawn them closer to him. But many of them. That's the time they were like, okay, we got to do something about him. We got to get rid of him instead of drawing near to him. They weren't broken enough. They had too much power, too much authority. They had too much of a good reputation and a good name. They were too noble. So they couldn't even see who he was. But this immoral woman, she knew exactly who he was. And the only thing she could do was worship him and be grateful for who he was and who he is. Us who are saints of the most high God now. Do we really know who he is? And if we did, we would move all together different. Got nothing wrong with Christmas and those who celebrate it and want to give gifts and be in the holiday cheer. I don't have anything wrong with that. But if you can put any holiday above the master, you don't know who he really is. Because he ought to be, as they used to say, the cat's meow of your life. He ought to be just the number one influence in your life always because he's always forgiving you and he has forgiven you. He calls you forgiven, even though in your life it's a process of forgiving. In other words, you, you haven't even grown to the place you need to grow, but he calls you forgiven or treats you like you're forgiven. He treats you like a king <clears throat> when you function like a pauper. He treats you like a queen when you sometimes function like a slave girl. And so this woman was like, I got to worship him because he's been so good to me. So no matter what season it is, Jesus has to be the reason for every season. And we have to take that 
into every season, the new year, whatever year, because he's too good to us. And he, and he has forgiven us. And he saved us and sanctified us. Yes, many of those things are processed for us, but we get the benefit right now. We get to be called the children of God, the sons of God, the sons and the daughters of God. We get treated as if we never made a mistake. We get treated. It's called justification, just as if I never sinned. We get treated with his anointing, his power, his love, his grace, his mercy, his tender kindness. We get all of that now, even though we haven't grown to the full place that we need to grow to. That it should leave us with nothing but humility and worship for our master. And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. One of the greatest things about this great exchange is that all we're asked to do is believe it. Believe that he has the power to forgive and that he's chosen through his love, his grace and his mercy to forgive us. And the only thing he asks for us is our faith. And then he turns around and he doesn't act like he's the one who did it all, which he did in, in the story that he told one owes 50, one owes 500, neither one of them can pay him back. And so the master just kindly forgives both of them, cancels the debt. But even though he did all the work, he's canceled the debt. He's done the forgiving, he, forgiving. He turns around and says, oh, your faith has done this. Your faith made you whole. The woman with the issue of blood, he said, your faith made you whole. But you did all the work. You mean to tell me my little believing, you're going to treat me great and special over my little believing? The Bible says of Abraham that Abraham believed God and God credited to him for righteousness. You, you mean you made him the father of faith and all he did was just choose to believe? And even in his believing, he stopped believing for a while. He started doubting. He started doing stupid stuff. He was lying. He, he, he got with Hagar. But at the end, God says, oh, you're a man of faith. You believed me. But he really didn't do a whole lot. Yes, Abraham did a lot more than us. He was willing to sacrifice his son. But in the grand scheme of things, Abraham was human and made a whole bunch of mistakes. And God says, oh, your faith is great. Do you realize how much God has done for us? All he asks us to do is simply believe. And when we believe, he acts like we're awesome. And so then what he says, and so let's go back to it. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Uh, you did all the work. All you asked me to do is believe you did all the work. And because I believe, you're going to give me peace too? You're going to tell me it was my faith, my little tiny mustard seed faith? You're going to use that and give me all this? And then I get peace too. And so he's like, oh, by the way, all these folk are judging you, but I'm going to forgive you. And because you just came and drew nigh to me and worshiped me, hey, I'm going to credit that to you. I'm going to call that faith. And by the way, when you go, go in peace. In other words, I'm going to let peace follow you. Yeah, I, I know you got a bad reputation, but I'm about to open doors of peace. I'm, I'm, going, I'm about to fix stuff for you. In other words, God is doing it all. It's the gospel message, and it's so beautiful. The more I teach it, talk about it, preach it, the more flabbergasted I become of how one-sided the gospel is. 
and how much we get for what he's already done. So here was the final point. The gospel is God offers free forgiveness and only asks you for your faith. He just asks you for your faith. That's the only thing. He just asks you to believe. And he does a lot of stuff to get you to believe. And then when you believe, the free forgiveness of God, they, they abound to us. So that ought to just make you have the mindset, I am forgiven. I'm not perfect, but God never asked me to be perfect. He was perfect, so I don't have to be. Why, why do, does God need two perfect people? He already had one. And the one that he had, he made him sacrifice himself. So God is not that big on perfection. He's actually big on brokenness because the broken people need him. And so if you're broken, if you're sometimes sinful, if you're sometimes jacked up, messed up, confused, addicted, whatever, you're the prime candidate to believe. And if you would just give him your belief, he says, I got you. I got the rest. The rest is on me. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I'm meek and lowly heart. And you will find rest for your souls. That's Matthew 11, 28 and 29. Jesus says, I'll do all the work. Just come to me. And this woman, who was an immoral woman, she came to him. But when she left, she left in peace. So in this Christmas season of tidings of great joy, the reason why we are celebrating is not just that he came in a manger is that he came in my manger. He came in my mess, and he lives in me. And if I can believe that, forgiveness is mine. All right, let's bow our heads, and let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, and we praise you. We thank you to praise you for this message, this story. Like this immoral woman, many of us have issues, hang-ups, but you allow us to draw near to you. And God, let us worship you with a pure heart, grateful for your forgiveness in our life, your grace, your mercy, your goodness. All my life, you have been faithful. And all my life, you have been so, so good. With every breath that I am able, I will sing of the goodness of God. And we give you praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. We'll see you again next week. And we'll see you on Sunday morning. You are forgiven. God bless you.